trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing a mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. When I was young, me and my mama had beef, 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister. Over the years, we was poor and other little kids. And even though we had different daddies, the same drama when things went wrong, we blamed mama. I reminisce on the stress I caused. It was hell, hugging on my mama from a jail cell. And who thinking elementary? Hey, I see the penitentiary one day. Running from the police, that's right. Mama cast me put a whoop into my backside. And even as a crack fiend, mama, you always was a black queen, mama. Stand for a woman, it ain't easy trying to raise a man. You always was committed. A poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did it. There's no way I can bring you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. Tell us it was fair. No love for my daddy, cause the coward wasn't there. He passed away and I didn't cry. Cause my anger wouldn't let me feel for a stranger. They say I'm wrong and I'm heartless. But all along I was looking for a father, he was gone. I hung around with the thugs, and even though they sold drugs, they showed a young brother love. I moved out, started really hanging. I needed money of my own, so I started slanging. I ain't guilty, cause even though I sell rocks, it feels good putting money in your mailbox. I love paying rent when the rent's due. I hope you got the diamond necklace that I sent to you. Cause when I was low, you was there for me. You never left me alone because you cared for me. And I can see you coming home after work late. You're in the kitchen trying to fix us a hot plate. You're just working with the scraps you was given. And mama made miracles every Thanksgiving. But now the road got Welcome back to own. Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio for Monday, May 15th with my lovely co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael, happy Monday, everybody. Uh, so the song we were just listening to was Dear Mama by Tupac uh, in celebration of Mother's Day, of course, which was yesterday. Um, Dear Mama by Tupac Shakur particularly addresses the adversity he saw his own mother facing in parenting and let her know that her efforts are appreciated. Um, today, we'll talk about mothering in America with writer Jessica Gross, whose most recent book is entitled Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. Um, we'll do a few headlines and... Um, get into that with Jess Gross. Uh, well, uh, just I wanted to point out, you know, as a Baltimore guy, we all uh, from Baltimore have some love for Tupac Shakur, who uh, went to high school, at least at the Baltimore School for the Arts, grew up in North Baltimore. Uh, and uh, this weekend was a uh, Baltimore ceasefire, Baltimore peace movement weekend. Listeners to the show will know we've had on 
uh, some of the organizers that I've worked with putting together those efforts to uh, decrease the violence and celebrate life in Baltimore. So I just wanted to celebrate uh, that moment, that Mother's Day uh, movement uh, this past weekend to celebrate life in Baltimore. Uh, and last week I'd sort of meant to and, and, and brushed over it, um, the uh, killing in our own subway system of the unhoused uh, Mr. Uh, Jordan Neely. Um, Dr. Raphael, was there some, anything that you wanted to say in particular about that um, incident? Well, you know, I I know that folks are out there protesting about this, and um, I mean, I'm a psychiatrist, right? So I know that there's been mental illness implicated in what happened. I, I just want to say that there's data to support that people with mental illness are more likely to be victims rather than perpetrators of violence. Um, so keep that in mind. And also... If, in fact, the man was upset about being unhoused and, and not having food security, let's also just acknowledge that there's some therapeutic value in housing and food security. So um, I think if we're going to start with how things can be prevented, I mean, you know, getting food security and housing is it's a long it's a long road agenda. But either way, I think that that's where we have to kind of be focusing our efforts for now. And, uh, you know, there have been some people that have been calling the assailant, uh, in this case, Daniel Penny, right, I believe his name is, uh, uh, a, a good Samaritan, including Governor Abbott. Um, and I think that's a very horrible misreading of the parable of the good Samaritan, right? Uh, this good Samaritan helped someone uh, by the side of the road. Uh, he didn't choke anybody out uh, who was acting out. So um, that kind of talk, I think, is way out of line and really misses the point. So just wanted to recognize the uh, the tragedy uh, and the humanity of uh, Mr. Jordan Neely uh, as, you know, that uh, that drama is not over. We're going to hear more about it, um, but uh, just to acknowledge it, <clears throat> excuse me, as we're moving forward. Um, and I think uh, we're going to get uh, uh, Ms. Gross, Jessica Gross, on the line in a little bit, and Dr. Raphael is going to talk a little bit about uh, what can we expect on today's show? But uh, before we have her on the air, we're going to have some music by some good friends of the show, uh, Alex Galley and Victoria Legrand uh, of Beach House, a childhood friend of mine, Alex Galley, uh, the song American Daughter, which felt appropriate for today. Uh, and they have a new album out. I just wanted to celebrate that as they're good friends of the show. Um, but, uh, it's actually I an amendment of their recently released album Once Twice Melody these like five songs that they didn't feel fit on the album as it was but then they decided to release them all together so that EP is called Become and the first track on that EP is as Simon said American Daughter so this is it by Beach House
Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on the line in studio uh, with my lovely co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael, and I'm very pleased today to introduce Jessica Gross. So a few words about uh, Ms. Gross. Jessica Gross is an opinion writer at the New York Times who writes popular, a popular newsletter on parenting and was the founding editor of Lenny, the email newsletter and website. She also writes about women's health, culture, politics, and grizzly bears. She was named one of LinkedIn's Next Wave Top Professionals 35 and Under in 2016 and a glamour game changer in 2020, 2020 for her coverage of parenting during the pandemic. She's the author of the novels Soulmate and Sad Desk Salad and lives in Brooklyn with her husband and daughters. Uh, Ms. Gross, you there? Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. It's thank, our pleasure. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So uh, I'll jump right into it, Ms. Gross. So I'd seen a reel recently on social media, and I, I didn't save it. I wish I had. Uh, that basically said that becoming a parent in America is basically learning to navigate various complex and dysfunctional systems almost immediately. So healthcare, education, childcare, nutrition, food security. And, and these days, parents are increasingly learning to navigate these systems without the proverbial village. Um, and in Screaming on the Inside, you cover many of these issues of modern mothering by speaking with moms and really digging into the American history to explain our current state of affairs as parents. So um, help us understand what inspired this book and what was the exploration like? So I've been thinking about the ideas in this book since before I had kids. Um, it just, when I started covering... Um, I don't like to call them women's issues, but that's sort of how they're categorized mm -hmm. in media. Um, I started covering them in my 20s, and it just was very obvious to me that the fact that the United States does not have paid parental leave and basically all of our peer nations have that support um, was unjust, and it was bad for parents, and anyone can plainly see that um, – birth parents should not be going back to work within weeks of giving birth. And they're, you know, just the, that on its face was an issue that I, I covered um, before I had kids. And then um, when uh, I got pregnant with my older daughter, I had a very difficult pregnancy. Um, this is now almost 11 years ago, um, but I had hyperemesis, which is uh, severe morning sickness. And um, I had to quit a job that uh, I had basically just started. And um, it was a really horrible time. And the only way that, you know, my family got through it was because I had basically all of the privileges that you could possibly have in the United States. I was married. I was married to someone who had a good job, who had health insurance that could sort of get us through this time, which was, you know, emotionally and physically really tough for me. Uh, and so when I came back from, you know, started to work again after that pregnancy, um, you know, I just really felt like it was morally the right thing to do to devote at least a big part of my career to changing um, a lot of these systems that were clearly not working for American parents. And um, then the pandemic hit, and I think it became clear to a lot more people that the status quo was not serving them. I think they possibly hadn't thought about it because when you have kids, you're just getting through the day, getting through the year. Um, you don't necessarily have time to think about the ways in which um, none of the systems are working well for 
almost anybody. Um, and so I felt like that was really a moment where a lot of the ideas that I'd been having for years crystallized. And I think they crystallized for a lot more people. And it just became uh, more a part of the conversation. So thank you for saying that. That That's wonderful. Um, and And noble of you to kind of say, look, I realize that I have some privileges. And I realize that you know, or how these things are kind of sustaining me. And so folks who don't have access to these things, what must their life be like? But um, as new parents, especially, you say that the status quo you realize in the pandemic particularly is not serving us. But in your book, you go back to, you, you go through American history and think about the ways in which, you know, medicine itself, obstetrics and gynecology, and even psychiatry contributed to what we still call the status quo when we're talking about times of like the Great Depression, World War II, and even before that. Um, a lot of that goes to serve the idea of like the total motherhood. So can you explain to us what uh, total motherhood is? So total motherhood is this idea that every making, waking moment should be devoted to your child, um, uh, not even just physically and emotionally, mentally. Every, there was some line from a best-selling book that was published in the year uh, 1900 that said, literally, a good mother has every waking minute of their mind devoted to the well-being of their child. And that's just not possible <laughs> for right, anybody. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of the sort of sordid and upsetting history of obstetrics in the United States, it's kind of like, where do we begin? Um, it's, it's all pretty ugly. And uh, there's a lot of eugenics mist mixed in, um, particularly in the Victorian era. Um, and, you know, the um, wisdom and knowledge of midwives was really discounted and diminished right. um, as, you know, modern day obstetrics rose up. Um, and then in also terms just of... kind of made the credentials inaccessible. I think we talked about this a little bit last week, um, but the, they made the credentials inaccessible by kind of, you know, requiring fancy degrees and things that were kind of out of reach for certain groups of people who were practicing, who were doing birth work for generations, basically. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And then, I mean, even when there were, um, movements forward in terms of things like pain relief, there was a whole movement of obstetrics that said, oh, if you're birthing right, if you're doing it the right way, it shouldn't hurt. Right. If, if giving birth hurts, that means that you're afraid and you're doing, and you're sort of rejecting your own femininity. So right. <laughs> even when there were sort of advancements that were coming out of the medical profession, somehow it still ended up that, you know, choosing to use them was seen as, you know, tried to make you feel like it was not the right way to right, give birth. Right, it was like subpar, subpar care. Exactly. And if you had any, like, you know, discomfort, like you're pointing out hyperemesis gravidam or you're vomiting a lot and, and things like that, they'd be like, well, then it's something wrong with you. <laughs> it's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. And what's really amazing uh, in a bad way. So my mother is also a psychiatrist, a retired psychiatrist, and she was pregnant with my older brother uh, when she was doing her internship and residency. And she was told by her advisor that her morning sickness was transference. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And even okay. and that was 1978, 79. Um, and even then she was like, that's garbage. Like, I don't get out of here. Like she her. didn't take it seriously. Good for her. But I mean, that's, you know, not so long ago that even in it's medical not. schools, you were 
get be you know and she was one of five women in her medical school class like it was wow. not um you know she was she was really paving the ground and i think she just you know i had the attitude at the time like i'm not going to hear that well i mean yeah shout out to her for that um, <laughs> <laughs> and and the thing is you you cover in the book i mean okay we we know listening i'm a psychiatrist as well but that doesn't mean that i cannot point out flaws in you know the system as it were and and what i'd like to see moving forward and we got to call it out in order to kind of change it right mm-hmm. um but during war times there were women entering the workforce but once the war was over not for nothing but psychiatrists made them seem like you had to want to go back home and if you didn't it was neurotic. Yep. And I mean, just to be clear, black women always worked. Immigrant women always worked. Right. There were always women in the United States who worked, whether, right. you know, under coercion, obviously during slavery. And then afterwards, you know, working class women always worked. So the idea that a quote unquote good mother did not work outside the home. Well, that's already saying only upper class women are good mothers. Thank that's already that. cutting out an entire, you know, and that's so racially coded and everything. So, you know, you're already starting from there, right? And so then during World War II, many, many more women of all, you know, backgrounds, political classes went to work for the good of the country. And then the men came home and there was a sort of concerted effort to say, well, you know, you don't need those jobs anymore. You need to go home and and it's your American duty to give birth and have a lot of babies. Um, and so part of that was saying, you know, there were some psychiatrists and it wasn't, you know, I I don't think it was mercenary. I think they really believed this, but their work was popularized. um, And they were saying, if you, you know, had a desire to work again, you were neurotic. You felt some, you you were not at home with your own femininity. There was something wrong with you. Right. Um, So yeah, it was not great. (laughs) Yeah. And and that all falls into the, the whole total motherhood thing, because like when convenient, we need you out of the house, but now we need you back in the house to kind of perpetuate these ideals you know, among the hundreds of kids you're going to have. Um, and I think what um, some of your analysis was helpful. I mean, I think at this point, anybody who's really paying attention knows, you know, as we're talking about women in the workforce, that women's labor is not valued the same, right? I think the last mm-hmm. statistics were something like 70 cents on the dollar. Um, and Cassandra pointed out to me a recent article that sort of um, codified that in a little bit different way or analyzed that a little bit different, saying that, there is employment-related costs, particularly for mothers, I think women in general, but particularly for mothers um, in providing unpaid care um, that can average something like $300,000 over a lifetime in an average working mm. woman's uh, you know, uh, career. Um, and so, you know, so another number was I think something like 15 or 20 percent, you know, of of her wages compared to a man would be decreased because there's only so many hours in a day, only so much work you can do, and un, unpaid or uncompensated uh, work uh, takes away from that. Um, do you think that that's kind of a, a fair analysis or plays into, into to what you were writing about? I think it absolutely does. But the thing that I'm wrestling with all the time is, is that um, I hate the way that we frame – paid labor as, you know, it's something we should all aspire to you to. We want, you know, it's, it's only going to be fair if moms are working the same amount of hours. And it's sort of like, I want care work to, to have the same value and people to be able to take breaks regardless of their gender in their life. And for us to understand that it is, 
part of life to provide care for the people that we love. Right. Right. And so sometimes I feel like we frame the discussion as like, it's only going to be good if, you know, we'll only, you know, really be winning if women are working as many hours or, you know, and I just feel like a hundred percent the way that we see power in this country, in this world is how much money you make. But if I want to, if anything, change the frame of the discussion and have care work be something that is just built into all of our lives in um, a more of a structural way. Um, so yes, I, it's totally unfair. It's so deeply unfair, (laughs) but like part of this whole, you know, equation of unfairness is the fact that this care work that is, you know, makes the economy run, makes our families function is, is what gives meaning to our lives, um, is just so devalued. Um, it really makes me sad because, um, I think to have a full life, it's so part of it, you know? I mean, and I don't just mean the care of children. I mean, the care of, of, you know, aging relatives, the care of friends, the care of, of spouses, um, you know, all of it is just so devalued. I think you make a point of that in the book, uh, later on, you say that if we value caretaking work the way that, you know, our peer nations do, then maybe other people would feel, um, how do you say, non-parents would feel less kind of affronted by people taking maternity or paternity leave and things like that. Is that one of the points you make or am I saying absolutely right? absolutely because I think what happens is someone you know the way it's it's like they get to go on maternity leave right, right. <laughs> and then and then the work is unfairly distributed among the people who are remaining and often companies don't sort of provide it they don't have a replacement for that person in other countries that have sort of a better structure in place it's actually a way to try out jobs. Like I remember talking to a former colleague who was in the UK. She doesn't have kids. Um, and she was like, Oh yeah, I'm, 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 I'm filling in for someone who's on maternity leave. It's a year. I'm trying out to see if I like this company and you can build a life, you know, a good working life, you know, not getting a lot of different experiences by filling in for people on leave. And so, uh, it should be thought of as sort of like a benefit for everybody. And I mean, again, it's all connected, right? Because the reason that they are able to do that more easily is that uh, health insurance is not tied to employment um, in the way that it is here. And that just makes everything so inflexible um, mm-hmm. for everybody. You can't cut hours. You can't say like, you know, I need to take six months off to, you know, my, you know, hypothetically, like your parent is dying. You want to be there for them in the last months of their lives. That is a, you know, truly meaningful life experience. And you can't do it because you're going to lose your health insurance. If you take a leave from work, like it's all, um, just connected to the structural failures that we have in a way that is just, um, heartbreaking. Um, you know, I've done a lot of reporting of people who are in the so-called sandwich generation, um, which is when you're caregiving for elderly family members and young children at the same time. And it is, it's just impossible. And and I think, you know, and and as you mentioned that the pandemic uh, became um, such a a sort of brought a lot of this into focus, all these crises at the same time, you know, um, inequality in who lost wages, um, but at the same time uh, increases on that kind of unpaid care work, right? Um, sick family members, kids at home. And I think some of the research that came out about that showed um, that uh, one of the issues is 
many people kind of don't even see or perceive that work, right? There was some data, I think, about half of men think they do most of the homeschooling, for example, and about 3% of their wives, I think, or their partners agree. Um, yeah. So, and, and I think I do most of our housework at home. So I think we need a chess clock so that I can clock in and clock out. And, but, um, but you no, know, it just goes to show that that values not only or that work is not only unpaid but but unvalued to the point of of being invisible, right? Yeah. No, I mean I think that's true. But I mean I do think I want to give dads credit too because every generation improves. Like you see the time you studies and and every generation of men is is stepping up and there have I try not to be pessimistic just sort of by nature. I like to have hope and, and also talk about the ways in which I think society is changing for the better. We have made wild strides in the past 50 years. Does that mean everything's perfect? No. But when I think about the fact that when my parents got married, my mom couldn't get her own credit card. Women weren't even allowed to have their own credit. Like that's, we are a long a way from that. A whole doctor right? not getting her own credit card. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, I can't imagine that. So I think dads, you know, I know so many involved, devoted dads. My husband's one of them. Um, so I think, again, it's like, I think it's so good to point exactly as you're saying, Cassandra, the way that, you know, things are still falling short, but that doesn't mean we don't appreciate that they have moved forward a lot. And I'm not trying to say like things are like they were in 1950. They were are not. And I am grateful. <laughs> <laughs> same here. Same here. But I think a lot of the invisible work also that Simon was alluding to is the the maternal mental load. It's yes. a little bit unfair for me to call it maternal mental load. But really, though, like the amount of time I know I personally spend planning everything, um, just making sure that the appointments are on the calendar, the swim classes are here and, you know, reschedule when they, you know, it's a lot of work. And like, it feels a little bit like the mind doesn't get to turn off. Absolutely. I always give the example of, um, I just don't know many dads in in heterosexual relationships where like it occurs to them, they need to start thinking about summer camp in January. Like Word. the mom brain knows <laughs> that it's, you know, those spots fill up fast. You got to get on that. You got to get on it. Like, it's just, I, and I don't know how that's almost like one of the trickiest things to make progress on because there's just so much of it. It's endless. I mean, my kids, um, they are, this is the last year they're going to be in the same school. They're both in elementary school together. And uh, my older daughter is in fifth grade and she's going to go to a new school in the fall. And then there's going to be two different sets of, you know, newsletters and, you know, dates to keep up with. And yeah. I'm just like, I'm already just dreading that extra layer of, you know, who's doing what today and where's, where is somebody and who's got to pick up when. And it's, you know, it's, it's endless. And you, you know, what else uh, takes, a, you know, adds to the mental load is nowadays a lot of folks talking about like, gentle parenting and kind of trying to reparent themselves to reconsider tactics, parenting techniques that didn't really serve them, they think, as as adults. And that really does require some reparenting and reframing and thinking about your own process. And if you're the parent who is more into kind of researching these new modalities and trying to understand and keep up and learn how to talk to your kid in ways that, you know, adults never used with you when you were growing up, that's also part of the mental load and trying to keep your partner up to speed on what you're trying to do. You know what I mean? And just, be, okay, we're not going to talk to him that way. We're going to, you know, we're going to try this instead. That That's that's significant because you have to be very, 
mindful of your own experience, acknowledge that there are things you want to change, and be very proactive on pursuing the information and practicing. Yep, absolutely. And that is, it's, I mean, that sort of self-work is a lot and can bring up a lot for people. Um, and so that's a not insignificant added layer, I think, for so many. Right, right. Um, in a discussion about, you know, modern American mothering, I feel like we have to consider social media. Um, definitely, just like it with kids and with practically any other thing, folks who are on social media start to perceive themselves relative to it. Um, and they certainly get they certainly get some information from it. So how, what's helpful and what's not when when it comes to social media and and mothering specifically? I think the most helpful thing you can do is pay attention to your feelings. Um, and if you're regularly seeing a creator or a type of content that makes you feel bad, you have to you know take the action and mute it and step away. And, you know, um, a lot of, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists that I have interviewed recommend time boxing. So if you're really finding yourself just falling down a rabbit hole, setting a timer and saying like, okay, I'm going to look at social media for 15 minutes today for 30 minutes, however you need, because I think sort of not looking at it at all is not realistic for a lot of people, especially because a lot of socializing happens mm -hmm. in direct messages. And you do find, you know, useful information. I mean, you know, just things like, oh, installing the car seat correctly, or there's so many little things that unless if you've never done it before, you need that sort of practical help. But, um, you know, everyone's going to have different things that sort of um, trigger their insecurities. Right. I know for me, because I struggled to breastfeed to this day, I mean, my youngest is almost seven. And I still like can't see breastfeeding content without feeling totally guilty. Wow. So I just, I just mute it. Like, and it's, again, it's like intellectually, I know like that ship has sailed. I see my kids. They're fine. <laughs> like <laughs> I can't, I can only beat myself up about it for so long. Right. Um, but it still like reminds me, right. Um, of that struggle and, and, you know, the choices that I felt I had to make at the time. Uh, and so I think everybody has whatever their kryptonite social media kryptonite is, right. right. Especially with, you know, it's especially in those early years, it's just so hard. Um, and you real, you want to do everything right and, and provide the best start for your kids because those zero to three years are so – we all know they're really important. Um, so, yeah, just sort of being aware of your feelings, your specific triggers, and um, trying to limit if you can. And, again, you will find me on – just scrolling through TikTok for, an, like, <laughs> for way too much time. So I'm definitely not trying to pretend that I am perfect at any of this. And if you're just joining us uh, on Trauma Code, we have on the line uh, uh, Jess Gross, the author of Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. Uh, and uh, Reggie, in a minute, we're going to queue up uh, Superwoman. But before we do that, give us a minute. Um, we were just talking about uh, social media and its effects on the identity of kind of American motherhood. And as I was uh, kind of reading your book and preparing for this talk, um, there was uh, something of kind of... Uh, a, a crisis that came up at the same time I was reading about uh, what you write about uh, the prominence of Mormon bloggers and this and this uh, blogger knuckle. Yeah, anything that you want to say about that? And I guess a little bit of a suicide warning for our audience uh, that that topic might come up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 
you know, I think everyone should be able to share their, you know, original stories, their unique stories. Um, there are sort of a disproportionate amount of very influential influencers who happen to be Mormon. Um, and there's sort of a, a reason for that. I mean, they're, um, their entire culture is sort of uh, teaches you to keep records and to uh, to sort of promote a certain lifestyle. And it's a sort of old fashioned uh, nuclear family, lots of kids. Um, and so, again, that's like that is one vision of motherhood. I'm not knocking it, but I think um, that that is a specific vision of motherhood that doesn't fit for everyone. And I know, you know, we were talking before about the really sad passing of, of Heather Armstrong, who mm. uh, was otherwise known as Deuce. And she left the Mormon faith um, before she started blogging about motherhood. Um, and, you know, she dealt with a lot of really uh, harsh blowback, not having nothing to do with her, you know, background, um, just for, you know, her honesty and her prominence, um, as someone who was talking about, uh, mental health struggles and difficulties with, you know, her early mothering years. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, it was, um, she was a little bit before my time. I, I wasn't really, you know, consuming a lot of motherhood media, uh, when she was sort of at her peak. Cause I, I was not a mom yet myself. Um, but I know she meant so much just so many people. Um, and it just really, it's really sad. A lot of people took it hard. Right. As I, as I read a little bit about Heather Arms, I mean, she does come up in your book and then I, you know, read some, some pieces about her in, in recent days. It seems that she was very much kind of like, she was real about what motherhood was like, what was hard about it, uh, what was nice about it. And the fact that sometimes one's coping is not ideal, but we can get through it as a community. So I want to definitely you know, give her that credit if, you know, in talking about her. Absolutely. So I'm, I, I do, you know, have to say if, if anyone in our listening audience is experiencing thoughts of suicide, uh, call or text 988. Uh, it's the suicide crisis lifeline. Um, it's hard to think about. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to think about. It's hard to talk about, but I, I, you know, if we're going to talk about it, I want to mention 988. Absolutely. It's, and it's, it's, I think she was really brave to also talk about how hard the blowback was for her. Um, I think there's a way if you are, um, a creator, if you, you know, I experienced this myself a little bit because, um, I've had some really kind of scary, um, feedback from people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't ever want to talk about it cause it's like, Oh, I have colleagues who report from war zones. Like I don't, you know, that's way more dangerous than threats that I, you know, are probably just some troll that has, is not going to follow through, but it's, it shouldn't be the cost of being honest right. and doing your job on the internet when you're not attacking somebody else. And it just, it, it shouldn't, nobody should have to bear that cost, but particularly, and the, you know, there's research to bear this out, women and people of color, um, non, I mean, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. I'm Jewish and I've, you know, experienced that, um, you know, people bear the folks who are not, you know, the white and Christian, uh, 
and men <laughs> tend to bear more of it. Um, yeah. And so, and not, which is not to say that there aren't trolls and, and threats for kind of everybody now, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be the cost of doing your job. It just shouldn't. And it's just unfair that you have to factor that in now. Um, and I sometimes even say like, I don't, if when I started my career, if social media was like it is today, I don't know if I would have become a journalist. I mean, I think I still would have, but um, it really makes your life harder in ways that were sort of hard to know when I graduated from college in 2004. <laughs> so for sure, um, for sure, yeah. And I think especially when you're talking about things like like parenting or mothering, there's so many opinions. <laughs> there's people who come from you know left and right saying how you should do things, how you shouldn't do things. And, and it's hard. I would imagine, you know, I don't have that kind of a social media presence, but I would imagine that, um, sometimes you don't know what to do with that information, but it's there and you have it. And, and you're wondering, am I, am I doing things right? Am I being good to my, you know, the people who are, uh, attentive to what I'm doing? Am I being fair to them? Am I making good decisions? And all that can be a very anxiety inducing. And absolutely. And I just don't think like as humans, we're meant to, um, be exposed to so many people whose lives we have no context for. Right. Like our brains, we don't, I I feel like we're still at the beginning of knowing what it's even doing to our brains to have all just exposure to so many opinions without any context for who those people are or what they mean to us. And so, you know, it's, it's, I really have so much empathy for anybody going through it. Thank you for saying that Jess Gross. Um, I do want to take a small musical break and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about how COVID has affected mothers um, in the workplace. code on uh, WBAI. This is Simon Fitzgerald in studio with <laughs> with Dr. Cassandra Raphael, and we're speaking to Jess Gross today, writer, author of um, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. And that song playing just now was Alicia Keys' Superwoman. Um, I, I feel like it's a little bit complex these days, speaking from the perspective of, you know, a doctor mom. I was pregnant twice in residency and fellowship with 
short maternity leaves and breastfeeding for years. And I definitely fell into the trap of thinking that the more I can do, the stronger I am, the more I can take on. And I think many moms think this way. And it's easily, it's pretty easy to fall into like a glorified martyrdom. But I mean, I respect that hustle. It definitely comes with an amount of self-discovery and skill building, but it is hard on a person. And I think in more recent times, there's been more emphasis on rest for mothers and listening to ourselves, making sure our own needs are met to continue to provide for others. But also as a mental health clinician, I think rest is a necessity for self-sustainability. But in the current infrastructure, I also feel that rest is a luxury for some. Jess, what do you think? I think that's absolutely true. Um, it is a luxury to have time in your day to take for yourself. And I think, you know, single parents know this most intimately because there is never any slack in their days. Um, and I think, you know, there's ways uh, in which, you know, a lot of the advice is, you know, take one thing off your plate Um just anything, something you can probably remove, but a lot of, for a lot of folks, there's nothing you could remove. Everything is necessary. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is absolutely luxury. Um, it shouldn't be. And I think that said, I think more people can find time to at least just, you know, even a half an hour for yourself. Um, than possibly you think. I mean, I think that there's a way, um, it's called intensive parenting, which is the sociological jargon for the way we think of good parenting today. And it means, you know, uh, every free hour should be spent enriching your kid and carting them to, you know, uh, some kind of class, whether it's, you know, a sports class or, you know, a music class or, you know, they should just be scheduled and, and whatever. And I think, um, you know, I didn't realize until I was a parent how much effort it takes to not do that because peer pressure is real. And if you see every kid, your kid's the only one who's not starting soccer at age five, um, it's you, it 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 does take a bit of fortitude to say, we're not going to live like that. Um, we've really tried, um, to, you know, keep our kids, underscheduled um because they need to rest that's true they do um, need to rest. we don't want them no you don't want them to be burned out too young and i think I, like, I fall into the trap too you know what more can we be doing and then my friend dr francesca decker hopefully i'll have her on in a couple of weeks too she she reminds me cassandra you are not a cruise ship director like no. you do not have to plan everything you know every minute of their day and furthermore that can kind of stymie some of their own creativity like let them be alone with their thoughts with their imagination and kind of see what comes of that right um but we're absolutely oh sorry go ahead oh absolutely and it also is you know i was thinking of the other weekend um we had a no screen saturday for Mm -hmm. all of us and we took it was a beautiful day um And we took our kids to, I was like, all right, we're just going to pick a random park um, that's in some part of the city that we've never been to before. And the four of us went and we had a great time. And it was just like family time. And I think when your kids, you know, once your kids are teenagers, they don't want to hang out with you. (laughs) And so if if you're over scheduling them when they're little and you can actually have this really nice family time, like... I'm just really glad that we have the space to do that together, you know? You Um, had no phone, Jess? No phone? No phone. I left Uh, my phone at home. We brought my husband's phone only to get us there directionally. 
Um, we really did it wow. all day. And it I was great. Try, it was really great. Know. It was hard. I'm not going to lie. Like, <laughs> But still in this way, when we are talking about families who kind of have resources and options, yeah. let's talk a little bit about families of um, families with fewer resources and, and fewer and less financial flexibility and families of color. We know that these communities were hardest hit in terms of the morbidity and mortality of COVID-19. Um, going back to moms and kids specifically, how were the changes in family life due to COVID-19? harder or different for them? I mean, I think, you know, just simply having more family members who died um, or were really sick from COVID Mm -hmm. um, and still dealing with that grief. And we, it's something I think we don't talk about enough Um, that, and in this sort of like, Oh, it's all over. Like the national emergency is over. We're done. We're moving on. It's like, wow, no, a lot of people, died and a lot of people lost family members and school was interrupted and lives were interrupted and you don't just you know oh well we're back to work in school and that's all it's all fine now well it's not for for a lot of people and I think um we don't sit with that enough or or and we certainly don't have um the structures in place to you know really help kids who have fallen behind in school and i know there's so many smart people and dedicated teachers who are working to you know help those kids who who did you know are still struggling Mm -hmm. um now that school is back but um there's just so much recovery that needs to happen that i think we just don't want to grapple with or talk about so let's grapple with and talk about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. healthy mothering or parenting shouldn't really be a politically partisan issue. And in, and in the book, you write that issues around mothering do reach across the aisle. So I think when we get into the nitty gritty of what that means and how we can support folks, then we can start to disagree. It can become a little bit more divisive when figuring out how to achieve healthy parenting, right? But what are some of the institutional changes that have been helpful, and what do you think are some of the things we should be asking of people with the power to help mothers? So, I mean, I think the biggest thing, um, and I think the most realistic thing that could happen politically is paid leave, um, and not just paid parental leave, but more, you know, paid family leave. Um, you know, I talked to, um, this wasn't for the book. This was for a column I did, um, after I wrote the book. Um, but you know, I talked to a woman who, uh, was a pollster, uh, who did lots of focus groups with Republicans. And she said, paid leave is popular with everybody, Mm -hmm. rural, urban, black, white, you know, men, women. And she talked about, um, a, a man who lived in a rural community, um, who, described himself as a conservative Republican and said, I really want paid leave because I work an hourly job and my wife just had a C-section and she can't, isn't supposed to carry anything um, except that I don't get any money if I don't work and I, and no one can come care for us because we don't live near family and, you know, there's no nurses that can, you know, come by and help our family. So I'm really desperate to um, be able to both continue to support my family, but also be there for my wife and my new baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems as apolitical as it gets, right? Um, and should be. So I think um, it's just a human thing. And I think the more we talk about it as just a baseline society thing that we need for a civil society. Um, and then we, again, exactly as you say, we can argue about how to fund it. And those will be big arguments because right. Democrats and Republicans really disagree about, you That's know, what funny. that should look like, but yeah. at least like, let's get to where we're giving this to people because it's, it's not, I think it's, you talk about these laws and, you know, 
the how the sausage is made, whatever. But there's actual real people every day who have to make horrible decisions about not caring for their loved ones. And that time, you can't get that time back as these laws don't exist, right? right? On the other, you know, where I see light is that even as I was writing the book, there were multiple states that passed paid leave laws. Um, I think it was Maryland and Delaware had passed paid leave laws um, just as I was editing it. So there's momentum. Um, and so I, I would, I think we're going to continue to see that. I'm hopeful that um, you know, we'll see it at the federal level. And in a weird way, I wonder if it's going to be a Republican president who passes it, um, because I think they'll be able to do it without taking um, so much heat from the other side. Right. Um, and that's really depressing and, and toxic and, you know, speaks to our sort of polarized, broken system. But, right. um, you know, my least favorite president ever, Donald Trump. <laughs> did pass a paid leave law for federal workers. And mm. so it did happen. And we can't deny that that happened. And that helped a lot of people. So, um, you know, I'm optimistic on that. I think childcare is still a place where um, there is still this widespread attitude, like, you decided to have children, you don't, you know, it's right. your choice to work, like, it's still sort of seen as this luxury item mm -hmm. for mothers, which is absurd considering inflation and the cost of right. living. Like, it's just like, yeah, I mean, and certainly many mothers want, want to continue working, but many mothers also need to continue working. So yeah. <laughs> like, I think there's still a way in the, where it's, it's thought of as sort of this frivolous luxury thing for, you know, um, I remember a politician and a Republican politician in the nineties called paid leave a yuppie entitlement. Um, wow. because it's, you know, this idea like, oh, it's just, a you know, it's buying a new handbag, continuing to work when, after you have kids. And I think too many people still sort of think that way. Um, and so I think we're going to need more time to have people's point of views and lives move forward to really see, um, to see movement on that. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. And, and in the meantime, um, well, we have a village or do we? What's up with the village, Jessica? I think it's a pet. You know, um, I, 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 one thing I see coming out of the pandemic, and it is um, anecdotal, but I do think more people are prioritizing living near family. Um, we prioritize living near my parents, um, despite the fact that, you know, we living in New York is so expensive. <laughs> um, you know, I just can't imagine... Um, not having my parents nearby and it's a great privilege that they're still in good enough health health to, you know, spend serious time with me and my kids. And so I, I'm grateful for that every day, but I think multi-generational families are sort of one way that we've forgotten is a village that is so important to so many of us. And then, you know, a lot of people have to build it themselves and yeah. that is so hard. I mean, you can't, you know, it's hard to feel trust with people to leave your kids with them and, um, have that kind of relationship with, you know, people you're not related to. And so, um, I think it's, I think it's there if, if you are willing to ask for help 
and it's really hard to ask for help. I still struggle because I never want to put people out. I never want to feel like I'm imposing. Um, but I think another, (laughs) yeah, I, I sort of think another reframe is necessary to be like, yeah, it's not, I think we always think of like, oh, it's like, I'm asking so much for someone to spend a couple hours with my kids. Like it's the worst thing in the world. And it's like, we have tons of friends who love hanging out with our kids. Like it's not, it's not always asking someone for this huge favor. Um, so, yeah. But going back to the one point that you made about the, the multi-generational household, I, I did see a meme on the internet that was just like, the real parent hack is living close to the grandparents. <laughs> That's it. Um, for those the truest who- thing ever said. <laughs> you know, for most people for whom that's, you know, accessible, that's wonderful. But, um, yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm hoping for the return of the village. Um, I'm hoping that whatever, like you're saying, the changes that took place during COVID are are real. And some of those things are kind of here to stay in terms of how we kind of consider each other. And if uh, you just joined us uh, halfway through, uh, you're listening to Trauma Code with uh, on the air Jess Gross, the author of Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. Uh, Jess, we're bumping up against the end of the hour. Anything you want to say before we have to wrap up? No, thank you for having me. And thank you for your really thoughtful questions and having the space where, you know, people can talk about all of these things. It's so important. Thank you so much for joining us, Jess. Hope to talk again. Yeah. Uh, And uh, again, you've been listening to Trauma Code. And, uh, you know, in order to do this show, we need to pay the bills. Um, So uh, definitely, uh, if you appreciate what we're doing, we appreciate you. You can call in your support at 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, uh, or give online at give to wbai.org, or just click the donate button on wbai.org. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll close out on What I Did for Love by David Guetta. Crazy. Knock me outside.